Today we are continuing in our series in the book of Hebrews called Better Promises. Mike shared last week that we don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews is, um, but that the tone of this writing is very pastoral. Um, Some have surmised that it's a sermon. If it is a sermon, it's a very long sermon, so uh, just be grateful. (laughs) Some have said it has about six points in it. We only have two points today, so... But it it does read like a sermon, and it it touches on a lot of things, um, a variety of things, and all of it to show the greatness of Jesus, to show us the wonderful details of the new covenant, a better covenant with better promises. And this morning, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 4, and we're going to talk a bit about angels today. And so before we read our passage, I just want to give a brief overview of angels, something we don't talk a lot about um, in, in the preaching here at Grace Life, but it's an important thing uh, to have a biblically shaped understanding of angels. If you pick up a Bible doctrines book, uh, such as Wayne Grudem's Bible doctrines or a systematic theology book, there are sections dealing with the doctrine of angels. What probably comes to mind about angels when you think about angels is um, kind of what is portrayed, you know, on TV and things like that. You know, white robes, wings, a beautiful glowing countenance, uh, such as I have in this light. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. Perhaps you think of the little figurines that you might buy in a Christian bookstore, the little babies with wings that more closely resemble the Roman god of love, Cupid. Um, We have some photos, so... Start with maybe what we might think of when we think of angels. We got that, and then there's a statue of an angel. It's actually a really nice photo. Um, but angels and the other heavenly creatures described in the Bible are actually quite frightening. Got some photos of what that might look like. So this is uh, one of the living creatures that's described as having a face of a man and a face of a bull and the face of a uh what's the other face there's four faces lion and an eagle um i don't know but i've not met too many creatures that have four faces um and and multiple wings covering its body um and then we've got another angel uh described as you know radiant splendor with six wings i believe this is the seraphim and then this one is the most bizarre of all living creatures described in the book of ezekiel um, it talks about the wheels that surround the throne and that they're wheels within wheels and they're covered in eyes. Quite frankly, this is kind of the stuff of nightmares. I don't see too many people with little porcelain figurines of that in their home. So what are angels? Angels are primarily seen in scripture as messengers and servants for God. The word angel uh, is a transliteration of the word uh, from Greek, um, and it means messenger or servant. When we die, we don't become angels. Angels are a separate uh, being. Angels are created, and they are spiritual beings with moral judgment, high intelligence, but without physical bodies. They have the ability to take on a physical appearance Um, Some of the living creatures that we just looked at in the Bible are seen with living, uh, real bodies, physical bodies, uh, in the heavenly uh, throne room. 
But angels um, often, as we see in Scripture, um, more or less take on the appearance of a different uh, body. Almost always in Scripture we see some form of human appearance, um, but they are spiritual beings. In their ordinary activities of ministering, protecting, and joining with us in worship, they are invisible. Angels have not always existed. They were created at some point, um, some unknown time, by God. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Paul shows in Colossians 1.16 that angelic beings were created through and for Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The spiritual beings we are told of in scripture are angels, cherubim, seraphim, and the living creatures such as the wheels around the throne. Satan... And the demons were angels as well, but they sinned and lost their privilege of serving God and now continually work evil. All these spiritual beings are limited and finite in their power, their abilities in their existence. They did not eternally exist such as God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have. They are created beings. Angels and demons were both created, though demons were not created in their current state. They are fallen due to sin. Angels appear throughout scripture uh, to people in a variety of ways. At times when bringing a message, angels appear in a more splendorous form, sometimes described like lightning or having a um, bronze-like appearance. And they are frightening because as we see throughout scripture, the response of people to seeing angels is one of fear. They often fall to the ground, shielding their eyes, and the first words out of the angel's mouth is typically, do not be afraid. So they are typically a frightening appearance. But as well, we see throughout scripture, some mentions of angels where they appear more like a human with less of the splendor. Um, Think of the three that appear uh, before Moses or not Moses, um, Abraham, um, when they give him the message about a lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. These three, one being possibly a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ are just described as being like humans. There is no mention in scripture of a ministry like that of having a guardian angel. Um, There's no mention of permanent assignment, just a broad role of protection and ministry as God, as God commands. The Jews developed the idea of guardian angels during the time between the old Testament and the new Testament. Angels show us several things. First, that God loves his people. He uses angels to serve and minister to us. And one day, upon Christ's return, we will actually have charge over the angels. We will rule over them in eternity. Some angels have sinned, but there is no redemption for them. Whereas humanity has sinned, and God sent Jesus to die for our sin. Angels also remind us that the unseen world, the spiritual world, is real. Angels serve as examples of worship, and they serve to glorify God. Their highest joy is to worship God and to serve him. 
And so it's good for us to be aware of angels, of their existence, of the nature of their activity. But in scripture, we're also cautioned about angels. We are not to worship angels or pray to angels. Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. We can pray directly to the Father. We need no other mediator than Jesus Christ, who has given us direct access to the Father. Another caution, we are to beware of receiving false doctrine from angels. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So even if an angel appeared to you tonight in a vision, in your bedroom, something, I don't know, and the angel delivered that some sort of message to you that was contrary to the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament, that angel is accursed and that message is to be rejected. Satan appears as an angel of light. He doesn't come as a guy in a red suit with a pitchfork. He comes to kill and to destroy. And one of the primary weapons is to distract and to deceive the believer. To cause us to drift from the gospel as we're going to look at today. You know, there's several um, religious organizations um, outside of Orthodox Christianity that probably should have paid much more closer attention to this verse of an angel appearing and and giving a message contrary to the gospel. So, this has been a long intro. Let's get into the passage. As I said, we're going to read a little bit lengthier portion of scripture, and throughout this series, there will be times when we cover larger sections than we might normally do And that's just due to the nature of the writing of Hebrews. Sometimes in this book, there are just big thoughts that you can't separate into two or three verses. So beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness and is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Today we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at our great Jesus and our great salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for this message that has been declared to us by your son Jesus and attested to by the apostles and shared with us through the writings of the scriptures. We thank you that through signs and wonders and miracles, you verified this message and you sent gifts of your Holy Spirit to the body of believers again to verify this message. We thank you for all these things, that you have kept them and preserved them for our benefit, that we might hear wondrous truths of your salvation promises to us. Father, would you open our eyes this morning to see such a great salvation, to treasure it and to pay closer attention to it as your word instructs us to do so. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for this message is Pay Closer Attention. Let's start with our great Jesus. This letter to the Hebrews boils down to three questions. Who is Jesus Christ? What has Jesus done? And what is the significance of it for us? Chapter 1, verse 5 through verse 14 is an extended argument based on a lot of Old Testament scripture. He's quoting multiple places from the Old Testament here. This is also like my main reason why I use so much scripture. I'm just doing what they do. Scriptures that, scriptures that argue for the supremacy of Christ over the angelic host. It begs the question, why does the author spend so much time talking about angels? Why does he spend so much time showing us the supremacy and the greatness of Christ over these angels? As I mentioned, during the period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ... Uh, there was an increase in interest in study of angels in Jewish theology. They were fascinated with angels, and they believed that they were the secret hidden source to the untold mysteries of the universe. The writer to the Hebrews then is writing to a people still influenced by an overemphasis on angels. He is therefore writing to recalibrate their thinking and their understanding of angels in relation to Christ. There are four ways that we're given here in which Christ is greater than angels in these verses. First, Jesus is the Son of God, while angels are messengers. Jesus is eternally God the Son. From eternity past to eternity future, he has always been and will always be the Son of God. But that's not ultimately even what is in sight with what the author of Hebrews is saying. This sonship that he's referring to uh, is not only as Jesus, the eternal son of God, but to Jesus as the messianic son, the fulfillment of the Davidic promises. One commentator says this in Romans 1, 4, Paul says that Christ was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He has always been the son of God, just like he has always been heir of all things. But when he had made purification for sins and triumphed over death and Satan, Christ was declared son of God and heir of all things on a new basis and in a new way. Now he reigns as the God man, Jesus Christ, the son of God, not only by his eternal right, but now by the right of his victory over sin and death. He is son of God and manifests power by the resurrection. So the author here quotes from Psalm 2. And second Samuel seven to say that the father has never said such a thing to an angel, only to the son of God, Jesus Christ. <coughs> second, Jesus is the worshiped son while angels are worshipers. 
Here the author quotes from Deuteronomy 32:43 as rendered in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And that's important because it shows us that the audience of this book, while being Hebrews and, and worshiping under the Jewish system, were likely Hellenistic Jews, meaning their primary language was Greek. In Deuteronomy, this worship is given to Yahweh. The author of Hebrews applies it to Christ to show that Jesus is above the angels and receives their worship as Yahweh does because he is God. We see this in Luke 2 when the heavenly host declares the incarnation to the shepherds. It says, though the veil between earth and heaven is pulled back as the angelic host bursts forth in praise at what is taking place in that moment. Third, in verses 7 through 12 of Hebrews one, we see that Jesus is the creator, while angels are created servants. The writer quotes from Psalm 104, verse 4, Psalm 45, 6 and 7, and Psalm 102, 25 through 27. If you need those, I can give those to you after the service if you want to look back at them. The latter two being passages that are written about Yahweh. The writer is declaring Jesus to be God. The angels are God's servants. They are like the wind blown at God's behest. He breathes and the angels are sent. They ever live to do his bidding. And while the angels may surround the heavenly throne, Jesus sits on the heavenly throne. The angels are filled with joy at serving the Lord. But Jesus has been anointed with the oil of gladness. His joy is fuller than all the angels. It's fuller than our joy could ever be. Even our joy is a joy that the angels have never tasted. The angels have never had Jesus come and die for them. And it's this joy that angels long to look at, to wonder at. They, they wonder what that experience is like. First Peter 1, 10 through 12 Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The writer in verse 2 said that God made the world through the Son. Now he says that this means that the Son made the world. And that what can be said about God's creating can be said about Jesus creating. Because the Son is God. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. He is God. He is to be worshipped. This also highlights the difference between creation and creator. Creation in one sense will perish. What is around us is all temporary and will wear out like a garment. Maybe this is too much information, but I just bought new socks because my old socks wore out. And you can only walk around with holes in your socks for so long. But they wore out, and so you dispose of them and you buy, what, new garments. All of creation, including our mortal bodies, will wear out. We feel this now, don't we? The aches and pains of the body. I have more gray hairs in my beard than I did last week. Thank you, Olive. 
And I don't mean that just in that she caused it. She pointed it out yesterday. And said, Dad, you're old. And after I got up from the floor from falling down, I chased her. You know, I, I can't wait for our new glorified bodies when Jesus returns. But Jesus is not like we are. He is the same always. He is perfect. He is the son of God, eternal and permanent. Finally, the fourth way Jesus is greater than the angels is seen in verses 13 and 14. The writer quotes here from Psalm 110, verse 1. You know, as an aside here, he's quoted often from the book of Psalms. And as we mentioned when we were in that series, the book of Psalms is ultimately about Jesus. Hebrews gives us evidence of that. Jesus is the conqueror and the angels are our servants. Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty and his enemies are his footstool. The father has not said that about angels. This is Jesus, our conqueror. He conquered Satan, sin, death, and the grave. The angels are sent as servants of those who are to inherit salvation. That's us. In this way, we see a bit clearer of a picture of why angels serve God's people. Mainly because they serve God and do what he commands them to do. And that's their joy. But in serving God, they serve us to help protect and to preserve our faith in Christ. They are a means of God's preserving work in this way. Jesus is God, the eternal son who is to be worshipped. He is the creator, the conquering king, and Lord over all, visible and invisible. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than all earthly power and authority and dominion. This is who Jesus is, our great Jesus. And now the writer turns his attention to what Jesus has done. And so chapter 2 begins with this word, therefore. So let's find out what the therefore is there for. As I said, we're covering a good bit of the text today, crossing over into the second chapter. And when the scriptures were written, uh, the, the writings did not include chapter markings and verse markings. In fact, the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, uh, didn't even include punctuation. Those were technological advances later. And the idea of chapters and verses, these were added in time. Chapters in the 13th century A.D. and verses in the 16th century A.D. They're helpful tools. These are helpful things for us to be able to quickly find passages in the scripture. But the chapter numbers, the verse numbers, they're not inspired. When the authors of the Bible wrote their works inspired by the Spirit, they read more like the letters that you and I would write to each other in the sense that we don't typically put chapter and verses in our letters. Maybe if you write emails like I write, maybe you should put chapters and and verse markings. I've been known to go on a bit too lengthy in my emails. But all that to say, as we go through our series in Hebrews, as I mentioned, we're going to sometimes cover larger sections and cross over into other chapters uh, than just, you know, covering three or four verses at a time. These thoughts flow together. They're not disjointed thoughts. Chapter two doesn't begin a new thought. The word therefore clues us into it. This is a continuation of what's come before. Let's read. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this word, therefore, connects us to everything that we've just looked at in chapter 1. What the the author is about to communicate here is built on the foundation of who Jesus is. You can't really separate what Jesus has done from who he is. He is the radiance and the exact imprint of God. He is greater than all earthly authorities and dominions. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator. He upholds the universe. He made purification for our sin and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He is greater than the angels. He is God the Son, worthy of worship and the conqueror. It's a summary of what we've just seen. And because of all of that, Because this is Jesus, the Son of God. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This phrase is important, and it is a strong statement. It's actually a good bit stronger than our English conveys with the phrase, pay much closer attention, as rendered in the ESV. It literally means to furiously obsess about what we have heard. To furiously obsess. It is the mother of a newborn baby listening obsessively close to every noise that that little one is making. Just to be certain that everything is okay. Or maybe sometimes dad. As he wakes up in the middle of the night and goes, it's far too quiet. Although maybe at this point in time, we we take the far too quiet a little bit. You know, that's a good thing. It's the navigator of a ship obsessing over maps and watching the stars at night to make sure that they are on course. What is it that we have heard? It is the message of who Jesus is and what he has done to make purification for sin, to purchase for himself a people. In other words, it is the announcement of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to save sinners. Pay attention to. Obsess over the gospel, lest you drift. The author is writing to Jews who have become Christians. They are under persecution, and the temptation is to fall back to what is comfortable, what is familiar, what might ease up the persecution. There are serious warnings throughout this book about slipping back to the law or anything outside of the message of grace. And so pay close attention lest we, like a ship without a mooring, drift away to open water. We are to be careful about what we're taking in. What are we feeding ourselves on? Is it the gospel or is it something else? Is it the good news of Jesus Christ as explained by the apostles' teaching? Or is it legalism veiled in religious performance? Is it pragmatism, the idea that if you do certain things, then you will have success, successful results? A good outcome, five steps to a better you. So what are you hearing? What are you paying attention to? These can even be good things that are part of the Christian life. We can drift toward a hyper-focus on inward progress and outward growth, sanctification. 
That can be our primary focus. And before long, we are obsessing over what it looks like on the outside. We can drift toward too great a focus on evangelism and good works. Again, these are good things. But they're not the center. It can be over attention to excelling at everything we put our hands to. Again, remember a couple of weeks ago when I shared about Mary and Martha. Mary chose the better thing. Martha was obsessing over serving. Serving is not a bad thing. So the writer calls us to pay closer attention to what deserves our primary attention, our obsession, the gospel. This is why Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is inherent in this warning to the Hebrews is that it is possible to be a believer in Christ and to drift from the gospel of grace revealed in Jesus Christ as the primary focus of our lives. This isn't speaking of losing one's salvation. To drift from the gospel, however, will have consequences. To drift back into what may be comfortable or easy or safe. To turn from the gospel to self-effort or to pragmatism may result in a lack of assurance, a hindrance to joy and the fruit of the spirit. It may grieve the spirit. It may cause hurt to others and incur the discipline of the Lord. Yet, if you have been born again, if you are a Christian, God, by his grace, will not leave you drifting. For long, he uses discipline to bring you back. It's loving to bring you back because you are his. And yet we have this warning to avoid this drift. Pay much more closer attention over what you've heard, the message of grace. Repent of those dead works that we often drift toward. Because that's what these other things are. And we'll see that later in the book of Hebrews. I think it's chapter 4. To repent of these dead works. The writer then expands his argument in verse 2. We see that there was a message that the angels delivered. This was the law. God gave the law. And the angels were messengers of it. In Acts chapter 7 verse 53. Stephen as he is preaching to the religious elite before they stone him. Says this. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. If you were hearing that and you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you would be pretty irate. What do you mean we haven't kept it? Paul says in Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The intermediary is Moses. And the law was added because of sin until Jesus, the promised Messiah, would come. The law was binding and perfect. It was unalterable. Neglecting or ignoring the law brought about disastrous results. And no one could keep it. And so the warning, the message here, overall from this author to the Hebrews is why go back to it? 
what the writer is saying here with everything in chapter one in view. And these verses here is that Jesus is not just another prophet. He's not just an angel, but he's the son of God, the Lord of all and the savior. He is the one who sent the angels. He's the one to whom the prophets, uh, he's the one the prophets spoke of. And he's the one that sent the prophets. He is God come to you. And he has brought forth a complete salvation. He has brought forth the new message, the new covenant, and it is greater than the old. So pay close attention to his words. Pay close attention to his message. And there's another warning here. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Hebrews not only addresses those who are believers, but on multiple occasions, it addresses those who have not yet believed, but have been a part of the church. Don't ignore the message of Christ. The word about Christ. You may think you've done enough. You've checked all the boxes. Perhaps you've even voted for the right people. You've got a really good moral record. You're a good parent, good friend, a good brother, a good sister. You honor your parents. You don't steal. And you don't take too much vacation time. You're a good person. I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but these are all things that sometimes we rely on. You've heard the message of Christ because you come to church and you hear the preaching. But perhaps you've ignored it and said, I'm all right because of this, 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 and this. I went to church this Sunday. It's pretty good, right? This is to the one who perhaps has smelled the aroma of the meal. Perhaps you've tasted just a little bite, but you've never swallowed it. I implore you this morning, take the gospel in. This word of Christ, receive it in fullness. Don't ignore Christ. Don't neglect such a great salvation because you think that you've got it all sorted out. If the one who is heir of all things, the king of kings, creator of the very universe that you exist in, the one above the angels, the one above the prophets, the one above all earthly powers and authorities and dominions, has come announcing the message of salvation, we must take heed. If you neglect or reject this message, there is nothing left for you but condemnation. In verses 3 and 4, the writer says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There are four ways the message of the new covenant is declared and verified. First, it was spoken by the Lord. That is, that Jesus delivered it. Second, the apostles received it. They attested to it. They confirmed it. They preached it. They taught it. And we now receive from their teaching, which is recorded in the scriptures. All these epistles, all these works talking about the life and ministry of Christ. The book of Revelation. The historical book, the book of Acts. These things were recorded for our benefit. And they attest to the message of Jesus. Third, God the Father bore witness to it through signs and wonders and miracles. 
forth the Holy Spirit distributed gifts according to his will. These gifts attest to the truthfulness of the gospel and its superiority over the message delivered by angels. We believe in the continuation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here at Grace Life, we believe miracles and gifts of the Spirit continue to this day. Now, this message isn't on the gifts of the Spirit. Um, We don't have time to dig deep into that today, but perhaps a revisit on that topic is needed, a good good study on that. Derek did a study on that, I think, back in like 2013. If you are interested in it, it is on the Grace Life Avon website, gracelifeavon.com. But perhaps a revisit to that would be good. But we believe that all believers are given gifts of the Spirit according to His will, will, as we see here in Hebrews 2.4. Miracles, signs, and wonders, spiritual gifts are not an end to themselves. They test, testify and point to Jesus. They exist to bring glory to the Son, to testify and to confirm the work of Jesus. And they're also to build up and edify the church. This is... Another reason why we need one another. So that these spiritual gifts will encourage each other. That's why we're connected. God has placed us here together to build each other up. We can't do this on our own. Through these four areas, the gospel message has been delivered. And so let us furiously obsess over it. Some application. Believer. To you, pay close attention to the gospel of grace and faith revealed in Jesus. Remember who he is. All the things we saw in chapter 1. Remember what he's done. Live in light of his death and resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. This message changes everything. You hear us preach often about beholding Christ, trusting Christ, believing the good news. Believing the gospel, all these interchangeable phrases that we so often use. And perhaps you hear that and you wonder, am I doing this right? Am I doing this enough? Am I believing hard enough? Am I being furiously obsessive enough? I just want to encourage you this morning that we're going to walk through these things together. We're going to behold Christ together this isn't something again that you do in an isolated bubble we do this together and so i just want to encourage you it's not about amount it's not about am i a hundred percent on my faith scale do you trust christ do you love christ do you do you look at the gospel message and your heart is stirred and maybe not always maybe maybe sometimes it, it washes over you and you're just like well time to go about my day We're going to do this together. We're going to encourage one another in this. As we go through our study in Hebrews, we're going to behold Jesus in in more ways together. We're going to look at all the ways that he's better, that the covenant is better, that the new covenant is better, that the promises are better. And so just rest, just rest in his grace. Those who have not yet believed, as I said, don't neglect such a great salvation. I can't take for granted or assume that everybody in here has believed the gospel. I just encourage you this morning to do so. He has borne upon himself your iniquity, your sin, the wrath that you deserve because of sin. He took it upon himself and paid the penalty in full. And so believe in Jesus. And though we didn't spend much time on it, pray for the gifts of the Spirit. Pray for them to be evident. But I want to encourage you in that, don't seek the gifts, seek the giver of the gifts. 
They are not for puffing us up in pride as if to say, oh, I'm such a great person because I have the gift of such and such. If it's a gift, there's not really any room for you to boast in it anyways. They are for building up of one another. So let's use our gifts for each other, not for ourselves. And pray to be used in that way.